Hello. This is Mike Pinder, co-founder of the Moody Blues. You're listening to WBAI, New York. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more, it's blood for oil We know there's a link, they say Code War We say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War We say Code Pink Code Pink for freedom Code Pink for peace Code Pink to hunger Hello, everyone, and good afternoon from right here in New York City. My name is Rosa Soff, and I use she, her pronouns, and this is Code Pink Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM. This right here is actually just the third episode of Code Pink Radio, and the first time we're broadcasting live from New York City. For those of you who are not familiar with us, Code Pink is a woman's-led anti-war group that is organizing across the country to put an end to U.S.-funded militarism around the world. We are here to challenge imperialism, rogue capitalism, and war, and create a world of justice, peace, and equality. That might sound like a big task, and that's because it is. Achieving justice requires each and every one of us to join together in solidarity and demand a better world. And if you're listening to this show, you're already on the right path. And don't worry, because we have a great show in store for all of you today. We're going to be talking to two inspiring activists about the situation in Kashmir, along with the crisis of ICE terrorizing immigrant communities around the country. These situations are dire and require not only our attention, but also our action. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's take a minute to talk about the news. Yesterday, The Hill reported about the ethics complaint that we at Code Pink just filed against APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. APAC has been bringing members of Congress on free, free trips to Israel for years, but as it turns out, these trips are actually illegal. In the complaint, we assert, we assert that APAC is violating laws that prohibit lobbying groups from gifting personal travel to members of Congress. APAC does not administer these trips directly, but it uses its nonprofit arm, the American Israel Education Foundation. In reality, there is little separation between that group and APAC. And APAC has gotten away with influencing our Congress illegally for too long. APAC won't even tell us who is on its trips or what the itinerary is. And we know that why that is. The trips obviously are laden with a right-wing bias that tries to draw attention away from Israel's human rights violations. And they're trying to continue the massive amounts of U.S. taxpayer money pouring into Israel each year. Palestinian Congresswoman, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib was actually planning her own congressional trip to Israel-Palestine to show her colleagues the reality of the Israeli occupation on the ground and what it means for her own community in the West Bank. However, this morning, the Israeli government announced that it will be barring not only Representative Tlaib, but also Representative Ilhan Omar from entering the country of Israel. It has the power to do this through its undemocratic BDS ban, which bans supporters of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement for Palestinian human rights from entering the country of Israel. This means that two members of Congress will not be able to enter the very country that receives $3.8 billion of U.S. aid every year. It also means that Representative Rashida Tlaib will be barred from seeing her own family who live in the West Bank. Also in Israel-Palestine, tensions rose on Sunday as Palestinians gathered at Al-Aqsa Mosque for the first day of Eid, only to be met by Israeli police who shot tear gas, rubber bullets, and grenades onto the worshippers. Sunday was also Tisha B'Av, a Jewish holiday that mourns the destruction of the Second Temple. While Israeli Jews are normally allowed to enter Al-Aqsa, they are not permitted to pray there. 
In violation of that rule, hundreds of religious Israeli Jews, many of whom are settlers in the West Bank, stormed the compound for Tisha B'Av, accompanied by a heavy police presence. Far-right Israeli politicians urged the police throughout the day to bring more Israeli Jewish worshippers onto the compound, which only escalated the situation on the ground. Clashes continued throughout the day, and 14 Palestinians and four Israeli officers were ultimately hospitalized. Hanan Ashrari, a Palestinian official, said that Israeli politicians were trying to, quote, score points by competing on who can exhibit higher levels of aggression and hostility against the Palestinian people during this important holiday. However, in better news, the tide is starting to turn against the unyielding support that Israel enjoys in the U.S., This week, Jewish presidential candidate Bernie Sanders said that as president, he is willing to leverage U.S. aid to Israel to combat Prime Minister Netanyahu's, quote, racist policies against Palestinians. Bernie Sanders is only one of a few major presidential candidates, including Pete Buttigieg, who has vocally condemned Israel's military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Now turning to the economy, many economists are warning that another recession is right around the corner. Trump's trade war with China coupled with the ongoing protests in Hong Kong and the set date for Brexit in the fall point to an unstable future for the global economy. Economists are suggesting that it will be a mild recession compared to 2007-2008. But let's not forget that many of us are still recovering from the last recession, while, by the way, the rich have bounced right back and continue to accumulate more wealth than ever before in human history. While we don't know when the next recession will take place exactly, we know that we are overdue for a downturn in the economy. That means that more of us are going to be laid off. More of us will struggle to put food on the table for our families. More of us will struggle to pay our medical bills or for our obscenely priced prescription medications. But if you're rich, you have nothing to worry about. The system is made for you. But for the rest of us, it is time to unite, organize, and take power back from the 1%. Turning to immigration, just this week, Ken Cuccinelli, the director of the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services, took the liberty to revise the poem on the Statue of Liberty. The original reads, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Cuccinelli, a Trump official, said that the poem should instead read, give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their two own feet. While he came under fire for that rendering of the poem, he stood by his statement, claiming that the original poem only applied to, quote, people coming from Europe where they had class-based societies. This blatant expression of xenophobia, racism, and white supremacy comes at the heels of Trump's announcement that his administration will now be denying green cards to immigrants who use public assistance, like Medicaid and food stamps. This is just a continuation of this administration's assault on and dehumanization of the poor, specifically poor immigrant communities and communities of color. Protests against ICE and its concentration camps around the country are continuing to gain steam around the country. Just this weekend, Jews Against ICE and Jews for Racial and Economic Justice took over Amazon's office in New York City in a protest against its collaboration with ICE. Amazon Web Services provides a technological infrastructure for ICE to carry out its program of deportations and detention. During the action, 40 protesters, including a handful of rabbis, were arrested. And just last night, Jews Against ICE led another protest in Rhode Island at the Wyatt Immigration Center um, in uh, Rhode Island. It's actually a detention center. Many people are calling it one of ICE's many concentration camps around the country. And while protesters were blocking the exit path of the center during shift change, a guard named Thomas Woodworth drove his personal vehicle through the crowd of nonviolent protesters who were sitting on the street with their arms linked. Luckily, no one was severely injured. However, when the police arrived, they did not arrest Mr. Thomas Woodworth, who had just attempted murder. No, instead, they fired tear gas onto the peaceful protesters, ordering them to disperse. Make no mistake, friends, this is state-sponsored terror. And as the protesters who were targeted have noted, this is just a fraction of what is faced by immigrant communities who are regularly terrorized by the police and ICE. And to end the news wrap up on a positive note, I want to tell you about Muhammad Rafiq because he is a hero who stopped another Christchurch massacre from happening in Norway. 
A 21-year-old white nationalist had planned to carry out a massacre against Muslim worshippers at a local mosque. Heavily armed, he entered the mosque with the intent to kill. However, 65-year-old Mohammed Rafiq, a retired Pakistani Air Force officer, had other plans in mind. He tackled the armed white nationalist to the ground and subdued him until authorities came. There were only minor injuries from the incident that could have easily been another mass shooting targeted against the Muslim community. Mohammed Rafiq, you are a hero. Thank you for your bravery. Together, we will build a world where we can pray in peace. Um, And that is it for the news today. Now, in a moment, we are going to turn to our first interview for the hour. We are going to be joined by Hafsa Kondwal. She is an assistant professor of South Asian history at Lafayette College and is also a member of the Critical Kashmir Studies Collective. Hafsa has also been central in the Stand with Kashmir actions that have been happening around the world, particularly in New York City. Hi, Hafsa. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Hafsa. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So just to get started, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a little history about the situation in Kashmir and the origins of the conflict between India and Pakistan before we turn to what's happening now. Sure. Um, So as some of your listeners may know, Kashmir is a region that's in the Indian subcontinent, um, surrounded by India and Pakistan has sort of always historically had an independent identity, was an independent kingdom. Um, And in 1947, when the Indian subcontinent was being divided after British British colonial rule, um, Kashmir was a unique space where the um, majority of the population was Muslim, but it had a Hindu ruler, a princely ruler. And he'd had to decide where Kashmir would go. Um, And, you know, there's a whole long history behind what ended up happening that I, I don't have to necessarily go into now, but, you know, we can talk about some resources that people can read to get that history. Um, but basically, Kashmiri, uh, Kashmir state was divided between India and Pakistan. Two-thirds of the state were with India, one-third was with Pakistan, and the Kashmiris were supposed to be given the right to determine their future, what their ultimate future would be. Um, and that, to this day, has not happened. So within especially Indian-occupied Kashmir, um, there's been mass mobilizations against the Indian state um, and resistance against their incorporation into the Indian state since 1947, since the time of partition. Um, and it's only continued from that generation to the generation of my parents' generation, and now the young generation um, that, that is currently resisting against, resisting against Indian rule. Absolutely. And it seems like Hindu nationalism particularly is playing a significant role in the hostilities um, and occupation that we're seeing in Kashmir. Can you just touch lightly on what Hindu nationalism is and how it has manifested with regard to Kashmir? Yes. So Hindu nationalism was an ideology that sort of came to the fore during the colonial period. And there were different groups, um, reformist groups within Hinduism that sort of saw the Indian subcontinent, that whole land, as a land that belonged to the Hindus alone, um, the original Aryan race. So any sort of presence um, of Muslims and presence of Muslims in the country and the history of that region um, was rejected, and Muslims were seen as invaders. So this plays a role in Kashmir as well, because um, Hindu nationalists believe that Kashmir was originally a Hindu space, um, and that the Muslims came in and kind of drove everyone away. The reality is that, yes, um, you know, 800, 900 years ago, um, there, whatever we, what we know as Hinduism did not necessarily exist. Um, but, you know, there was different groups of people practicing what could be today's uh, construction of Hinduism. Um, but a lot of those people ended up converting to Islam. Um, so Hindu nationalists reject that, that trajectory. Um, and for them, the idea is to reclaim Kashmir for, for Hindus and the, thus drive out the Muslim presence um, of that region. Okay, and right before we get into this most recent flare-up, can you just tell us a little bit about what the occupation of Kashmir has looked like on the ground? So on the ground, um, especially in the last 30 years, it's become intensely militarized. So Kashmir is the most militarized uh, part of the world. Over half a million Indian soldiers and paramilitary forces are there. Um, before the 1980s, when an armed rebellion against Indian rule began, there were there was still an occupation. Um, it was mostly at the borders between India and Pakistan. 
Um, but since the, since the 80s, late 80s, uh, the Indian military has been in civilian areas, taken over schools, lots of checkpoints, bunkers, wires, etc. Um, and as a result, has, has, um, there's been a number of human rights violations, including um, enforced disappearances, rapes, extrajudicial killings, um, firings, live ammunition at protesters. Um, over 70,000 people have died since the late 1980s, wow. and each year, especially since um, the Modi government has come to power, those numbers are only getting higher and higher. So it's, it's a very dire human rights situation, and what makes it worse is that it seems that the international community, um, for the longest time, hasn't really paid much attention to it. Mm-hmm. And now Kashmir is starting to gain some coverage in mainstream media on account of the revocation of Article 370. Can you just explain to us what Article 370 is, what its revocation means for the Kashmiri people, and just generally what the role of the Modi government has been in intensifying hostilities and um, the occupation and oppression of the Kashmiri people? Yes. So at the time of partition, um, the, there was a kind of a client regime that was installed in Kashmir by the Indian government. And these were Kashmiri leaders themselves that <clears throat> had agreed to acceding to India, but only under the terms that uh, Kashmir would maintain its autonomy. So that autonomy was enshrined in something called Article 370 in the Indian Constitution, where uh, Kashmiri, the Kashmir state would have the right to... Um, uh, to kind of conduct its own laws, have its own constitution, its own prime minister, its own flag, um, and any rule that was passed in India would only be able to be passed in Kashmir through um, the approval of the state's own legislature. So on paper, this was a significant level of autonomy. But over time, India has eroded that autonomy. It's taken away the title of prime minister. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's put in certain laws without the approval of the state le- legislature. Um, but what's really at stake in this moment is that by completely revoking um, this article, the Indian state can pretty much do anything it wants to in Kashmir without any level of local consent. It's also made Kashmir into a union territory, which means that it's directly under the central government's control. And what people are most worried about at this time is uh, a particular provision in that article called Article 35A, which allowed the state initially... Um, to define who a permanent resident in the state was. And permanent residents would be able to buy land, buy property, hold jobs, etc. Now, by revoking this article, Article 35A, what, what this allows to happen is that anyone can buy, any Indian can buy property and land in Kashmir. So what you have now is the beginnings of a settler colonial project where Indian businesses, huge businesses, corporations, individuals will come into Kashmir, buy land, buy property, you know, force people out of their out of their homes and force them into exile, um, and populate the region with with settlers, essentially Indian settlers, um, and drive out the native population. So this this is why people are really, really, really upset at this point because, of course, we've li- you know Kashmiris have lived under an occupation, a very brutal one for the past seventy years, one in which their dem- democratic rights, political rights, civic rights have been taken away. But now this this is a moment in which this is an actual life and death situation for them where their where their where their entire existence and sense of identity is at is at stake. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the Modi government, the issue there is that the BJP, um, you know, the other party, the opposition party in India, the Congress, has certainly not done any favors to Kashmiris. Uh, many of the different provisions of autonomy were eroded by the Congress. Um, however the BJP but at least the Congress kind of maintained that Kashmir had this special status because it knew that if it took it away, Kashmiris would rebel in mass. Um, but the BJP doesn't really seem to have any kind of qualms about this. Their ideology, their party's ideology, again, based on Hindu nationalism, is that this is a Hindu land and that they need to reclaim it for Hindus. Um, and this has been their electoral platform all along. This is how they're able to mobilize their right-wing bases, is to lay these claims to Kashmir. So um, for us, observing on the outside... The BJP has been able to use the Kashmir issue to kind of strengthen their mandate um, and allow allow the party to then use the popularity that they get from this step to then conduct other things, um, kind of take other authoritarian measures across the country to consolidate their power. Mm-hmm. 
And since this announcement of the revocation of Article 370, we don't really know um, in the mainstream how Kashmiris are reacting because India actually shut down Kashmir's internet. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can kind of tell us what the reaction has been on the ground, how conditions have changed on the ground for Kashmiris and what they're doing to resist. Yes. So India, right before it took this step, it completely shut down all communication. So phone lines, internet lines, even the landlines, which in previous shutdowns had at least remained open. So the outside world had absolutely no idea what was happening on the ground. Now we're hearing different reports from people who have been able to travel to Delhi and leave Kashmir and um, uh, and be in Delhi. They carried pen drives of images and stories from people on the ground. Um, and... It, it's it's very horrific, the things that we're hearing. I mean, the entire region has been extremely militarized, even more so. Um, additional deployment of troops has occurred. And um, there's been a number of arrests, uh, over over 1,200 arrests of political leaders, social leaders, civic leaders. Um, just a recent report came out yesterday by a fact-finding mission um, called Kashmir Caged of Indian and Indian civic and political activists who came from Kashmir after having a couple of de- spent a couple of days there, and they said that children as young as seven years old had been taken away and beaten and tortured in jails. Wow. Um, so it's it's really horrific. I mean, we don't even know uh, what's happening in some of the rural areas. I mean, at, at at this point, most of the stories are coming from the capital city of Srinagar. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know the amount of sexual violence Kashmiri women have been subject to in this time. So, um, you know, but what we do know is that the level of repression is so high because Indian state wants to make sure that people don't resist and just kind of accept this um, laying down. But that, that that's not going to happen. We already know that on Eid, or, um, uh, a couple of days ago, there were protests that the BBC actually managed to capture. Um, around 10,000 people had come out after Friday prayers and they were shot upon. Um, wow. And there's actual footage of that. But the Indian government completely denied that this even took place. And the BBC had to actually issue a statement saying, no, actually, this is our reporting. This is completely factual. We haven't made this up. So they're trying to manage information um, in many, many ways. They are trying to go after people who are speaking out about the issue. I mean, we're dealing with a a country that has kind of gotten away with um, doing horrific things that other countries um do but you know because so many western countries have interest in india business interests etc um they never call india to to account um but india does the same things that china for example has done with the Uyghur population in terms of surveillance and suppression mm-hmm. so so it's, it's it's incredibly uh horrific what's happening on the ground And do you think that this um, new flare-up is kind of changing the silence that has um, surrounded Kashmir in the mainstream press? Do you think that now, um, given the intensification of what's happening on the ground, people are going to start paying attention more? I think, I, I hope, and I think that this is the case. I think it's also mobilized the Kashmiri diaspora to become a lot more active um, on this issue and to try to educate other people as well. Um, my concern is that, you know, Kashmir only becomes a matter for the international community when there's a threat of war between India and Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And even with this recent escalation, even though, yes, there have been some news stories coming out about the clampdown and the communication clampdown and this and that, but uh, I feel that people are just worried that there's going to be a war between India and Pakistan. Um, and that that's, that's why the escalation is scary to them, not because all of these horrific things are happening on the ground to Kashmiris themselves. So I hope that we can kind of shift the conversation to go beyond this whole discussion of India and Pakistan and to actually really foreground Kashmiris and their aspirations, which have always been for self-determination and for political freedom. Um, and, you know, the extent that we can change that discourse um, really relies on a number of people putting pressure on the media to cover the story properly, putting pressure on their elected officials, in the U.S., the Hindu American um, lobby or the Indian American lobby is extremely strong. They are learning all of their tactics from the the, 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 the pro-Israel lobby, um, and they've already kind of shut down um, a few kind of rare political leaders um, who have kind of expressed some level of dis- discontent with what India has done. They've already kind of bombarded them. Um, so, so we're we're dealing with a with a 
with a group of people who have a lot of material and political support in this country, and it, it's it's hard to push against that. But the 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 truth, sort of the moral um, moral principles, belong to the Kashmiri people. They have the moral authority because of everything that they've been subject to. So I hope that their the diaspora and other communities are able to kind of leverage that moral authority um, to get more people on board. Absolutely. And before we turn to some listener questions, I just want to ask you a very important question, and that is simply, what can we who are not in Kashmir do to support Kashmiris in their struggle for freedom? Yes, so um, there's been a group that's mobilized just around um, this recent escalation called Stand with Kashmir. So I would encourage all of the listeners to follow, uh, to go on the website. It's www.standwithkashmir.org. And you can follow the Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. And first and foremost, educate yourselves about what's happening. Um, read different articles. Get a sense of the history, the people, the culture. Um, but then also just follow certain action items. Um, we, we kind of put out regularly call for action. Um, for example, we asked people to um, flood. The, there was a congressman in New York who had issued out a statement that was concerned about human rights of Kashmiris, and he was being, you know, he was really being attacked by the Indian lobby. Um, so we asked people to, you know, call his office, send his office email, let him know that, you know, to take that, to continue to take that step. Um, call, you know, follow the media coverage on the issue and make sure that it's accurate. Encourage your journalists, um, journalists or any influencers or policymakers that you know to take this issue seriously um, and to really foreground Kashmiri voices. Um, and then there's actual events that you can host in your campuses and your communities. We have a list of experts up on that website that you can invite. We have a list of films. Um, there's a list of books as well that you can read during your book club. I think the, the what needs to happen for sure, at least on a grassroots level, is that people just basically need to be educated about Kashmir and what's happening. And then from there, hopefully we can change some of these narratives about 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 the region and about the issue. Thank you so much for that. And I hope all the listeners at home in your car are taking note. We need to act for Kashmir. The situation is dire. So now um, we're going to see if we have any listener calls who want to give a call in and ask you some questions. So for those listening, you can give us a call at 212-209-2877. And we'll just hang out for a minute, see if anybody calls in with some questions. While we're waiting, um, I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the comparisons that people are drawing between Kashmir and Palestine. Yeah, um, so Kashmiris have kind of always seen their story and their struggle to be in resonance with what, what's happening in Palestine. I mean, both share similar histories in terms of um, issues that have been born out of British colonialism, um, promises that were made to different communities. So there is that legacy of 1947, 1948. Um, both have, you know, had to deal with a class of people who kind of sold out their interests, whether it's Palestinians or Kashmiris who allied or, you know, um, made too many compromises with either the Israeli or the Indian leadership. Um, and both have had a resistance that's been really, really strong and has in kind of permeated their um, their cultural and their social identity. Mm -hmm. um, the one difference, though, for the longest time was that although there were many Kashmiris who had to live in exile, um, many had to flee back to go to Pakistan in, in the 1940s and 50s, um, they, the, the settler colonial project hadn't necessarily began in Kashmir. So this is where now, because of the threat of the settler colonial project, the, the similarities are all the more stark, that there is this real... You know, so many of the Palestinians were living in diaspora, were in exile. Kashmiris at least were able to go back, visit visit their mm -hmm. homes, even if they lived in the U.S. or the U.K. But now there is this real threat, this real fear that that's going to change as well. Okay. Um, so that's that's kind of where the two issues are now really cohering. Okay. And we actually have a caller. Caller, you're on air. Um, you can go ahead, introduce yourself, and ask your question. Thank you. I'm Carol from... Queens. So you mentioned a member of Congress that we could support who'd been courageous, but I don't know that you said their name. Yes, it's uh, Congressman, I believe it's Tom Suwazi. 
from Great. New York. I think somewhere in the Long Island uh, district. Yes, that's the congressman. Thank you. So he wrote a he, he wrote a letter. And then, are there any um, members of what you the Hindu cabal that you you said in Congress um, that are in New York or Washington D.C.? Um, there are Maryland. a few. Yeah, so um, there is the Hindu American Foundation right now is kind of mobilizing people to contact their Congress people, and there's a number of um, U.S. U.S. leaders um, that do receive money from Hindu Hindu interest groups, Hindu nationalist interest groups. Um, one that I can think of is Ro Khanna, for example, in the Bay Area, um, just because there's a whole huge community um, of Indian Americans there. Um, but there are there are others, um, and we'll be slowly tracking them on our site and through some of our political advocacy efforts. And we hope that you can follow that to see like who who are these leaders that are being prop to really speak out against this issue. Um, but we're hoping that we can reach out to kind of some of the more uh, progressive um, progressive Democrats uh, who have spoken out about um, Palestine, for example, and we're hoping that we can mobilize their support as well. Thank you so much for that question. And Hafsa, thank you so much for joining us today. I really think that you've given our listeners um, a lot more insight into Kashmir, and you've stressed the need for us to act. So for everybody listening today, don't forget to go to standwithkashmir.org. Follow Stand With Kashmir on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And Hafsa, I cannot thank you enough for the work that you're doing to support Kashmiris and the community in their struggle for freedom here in the U.S. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us a, a space to express ourselves as well. Always. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. And this is WBAI 99.5 FM, Code Pink Radio. It is nice to block the doorway. It is nice to go there are nicer ways to do it, but the nice ways always fail. It isn't nice, it isn't nice. You told us once, you told us twice, but if that's freedom's price, we don't
This is Code Pink Radio, WBAI, New York City, 99.5 FM. Now we are joined by Cosecha organizer Jesse Ortiz. They were born and raised here in New York, New York, Brooklyn, where they now live. Jesse first got involved with Cosecha while living in Boston in the fall of 2016. They have been working with Cosecha in New York City since the summer of 2018. They'll be starting a dual master program in divinity and social work this fall. And for those of you who don't know, Movimiento Cosecha is an immigrants' right movement fighting for dignity, rights, and justice for the 11 million immigrants living in the U.S. today. Hi, Jesse. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. So I just wanted to talk to you generally about what it means to be an immigrants' rights organizer today during the era of Trump. It's obviously a hard time to be an organizer in this movement because it seems like the Trump administration pulls something else out of its sleeve every day. Can you just begin by telling us generally about the work that Cosecha has been doing to fight back? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It is a hard time, of course. Um, but Cosecha started in 2015. Um, so they actually started before Trump was elected. Um, and Cosecha's goal is to win permanent protection, uh, dignity, and respect for the 11 million undocumented immigrants in this country. And so I think, for me, what inspires me so much about Cosecha's mission is that they have this, or we have this really big um, goal. And we don't... Trump is obviously terrifying um, for a lot of people and has really amped up a lot of uh, the immigration enforcement in a horrible way. Um, But the immigration movement is, you know, older than Trump um, and organizers have been fighting for decades. And so Cosecha is part of that legacy of immigration organizers. Um, What inspires me about Cosecha is that the whole strategy of Cosecha was developed by immigrant organizers. um, And I'm kind of just able to pick up and follow in those in those footsteps and in that tradition. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of what what we do. Absolutely. And I think that you touched on a really important point there that, you know, it seems like we've forgotten that millions of people were deported under Obama. Children were still put in detention centers centers during his um, during his presidency. And, you know, we have the Democratic Party now railing against Trump. But the truth is that they were largely silent during the Obama years. So, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about and I'm wondering, you know, what Cosecha is doing about this is how can we actually keep the Democrats accountable? You know, if we are to have a Democrat in the White House in 2020, how can we make sure that it's not just business as usual? Right. So that's a great question, um, because that's exactly a lot of what Cosecha is focusing on now at this point, as so much of the media cycle is dominated by the Democratic uh, primary. Um, We're saying that we need to hold the Democrats accountable. Those are, they're the ones who are constantly, you know, giving us, giving the immigrant movement lip service that they're on our side. But really the record uh, does not show that they are. They're, you know, have they, Democrats have made so many empty promises to immigrants um, and really failed to deliver. And so what Cosecha is saying is that we can't rely on really any politician, um, you know, offer the right kind of protection and the rights that immigrants need in this country. And so we need to build a movement um, where we show how strong immigrants, the immigrant community is, and how strong allies are, you know, really being willing to step up and say, we're not going to back down um, until we get the permanent protection that we know everybody in this country deserves. Absolutely. And, you know, I really applaud the work that you've been doing on the ground. And, you know, while, you know, the the problem of deportations and the terrorization of immigrant communities has been around for far longer than Trump, it is true that Trump has really um, wrapped up this uh, authoritarian and fascist approach to immigration that we're now seeing unfold in the U.S. So, you know, you said you got involved in 2016. So I guess I'm kind of wondering what has changed for um, you and for Cosecha as an organization between now and 2016, have you seen things um, getting progressively worse on the ground? Yeah, I mean, so I joined, I think like many people, um, I, you know, I was involved in activism before Trump, but I really was, was sparked by his election and his campaign and just the vitriolic 
kind of horrible language that he used and like his plans and his divisiveness. Um, and so I think a lot of people were like, I was drawn into Cosecha around the time of the election. Um, and we've like really been able to get a lot more people on the side of, um, of kind of proposals like abolish ICE, um, you know, permanent protection. So that means like giving, um, you know, citizenship or papers to like every undocumented immigrant. Um, the kind of like proposals that would have been considered, you know, more radical or extreme a few years ago or that weren't even on people's radar have really um, become much more common. And we see Democrats now saying abolish ICE, which is not even, I don't know, not anything that I heard in 2014. Um, people didn't really even talk about ICE, of course, nearly as much as they do now. Um, so that's been, well, it's been more divisive in some ways. Polarization has helped us because it's, we've gotten a lot more people on our side. We've gotten way more people mobilized into the movement. Um, on Saturday, we had a big action where 100 people got arrested in front of an ICE office. I can't imagine that you know, happening, being able to mobilize that many people in, in 2015 um, for a similar action. Absolutely. And, you know, I really do agree with you that, you know, polarization can be important. We need to draw a line in the sand and say, either you're with immigrant communities during this vital moment or you're not. You have to make a decision, you know, you can't be neutral on a moving train, as many have said in the past. So, you know, I really do think that, you know, this is an important moment for people to start to get involved and to make that decision. Which side are you on? And, you know, I think speaking to the abolition of ICE and also the Center for Border Patrol, um, Border Protection, um, excuse me, Customs and Border Protection. I always get those acronyms a little confused. But, you know, a lot of the times, you know, people have taken these institutions for granted. But the truth is that both of these were founded in 2003. They haven't even been around for a blip in history. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what it means to abolish ICE, uh, what that means for immigrant communities and the movement that Cosecha is a part of to reach that end. Yeah, so I guess the best way that, like, Cosecha understands, like, abolishing ICE or, you know, attacking ICE is thinking about what are the institutions that support ICE. And so we've, last summer, we did a couple of actions um, in the Amazon bookstores in New York City. And actually, just a few days ago, there was a huge action of, not exactly sure who organized it, but it was like a Jewish organization um, who did a occupation of the Amazon bookstore. And Amazon is just one institution that we know um, offers web services for ICE and like other technologies um, or works with them. There's a very complicated web of like who makes money, how, and which organization, but Amazon does profit off of ICE. Um, and so we're looking at institutions like Amazon, um, like the, the business but the building we were protesting on Saturday was, it's an office building. Um, it's called Star at Lehigh. And basically we're saying that they should evict ICE because they're offering business to ICE, they're supporting ICE. Um, and, you know, airlines and bus companies and all these different organizations that ICE couldn't operate if these organizations didn't cooperate with ICE. Um, so ICE doesn't have that many employees. I think they're, I want to say they're 20,000. I should fact check that. Um, but actual, the actual number of ICE employees is not that high. And if we were able to build a movement in the country that said nobody should operate with ICE, I mean, you know, basically you'll be you know, blacklisted or you know, no one will want to work with you if you work with ICE, um, then we can really force them to come to a halt. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I was actually at that protest at the Amazon store this past um, this past Sunday with it was uh, Jews for racial and economic justice. And, you know, you're entirely right. Um, I think kind of the approach that many groups are taking, which, you know, of course, Cosecha is a part of is no more business as usual. If you're going to be um, enacting this program of terror, detention and deportation, then we're going to hold everybody accountable who is aiding and abetting you in this in this process. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of talk about what's happening right now to immigrants in this country. Um, You know, maybe if you can touch on what just happened in uh, Mississippi um, on the first day of school and maybe just, you know, share some stories for the listeners about what ICE is actually doing to our immigrant neighbors and siblings. Yeah, I mean... We know that 
what was it, 680, like over, you know, almost 700 um, people were detained by ICE in Mississippi at a, what was it, a factory or a plant um, on the first day of school. And basically all of these hundreds of um, kids were left without parents um, or like one of their parents had been taken away on the first day of school, which is really traumatic. And we see like ICE, um, you know, escalating their actions around the country. There was a few weeks ago, you know, Trump announced that they were going to do like a, all these millions of deportations um, one weekend. And we saw in New York, there was um, one in Harlem, like ICE was spotted in Harlem and in Sunset Park in Brooklyn near where I live. Um, and what was amazing and what I thought was, you know, really inspiring was that the next day, um, so like there was this deportation and there was some kind of interaction in Sunset Park. And then the next day, and at, I don't know, I think it was 5.30 in the morning on a Sunday, there was, we went to a council member's office in Sunset Park, and there were hundreds of people, not hundreds, there was maybe like 80 people, I don't know, packing this office. And we're not going to stand up for this. Um, we're going to volunteer our time and really go out and make sure that ICE doesn't mess with people in our community. So I don't know too much about, like, the day-to-day um, operations of what ICE is doing. Um, that's not really, like, the area that I work on. But um, seeing people say, like, when, they, when we see, like, bad stuff going down and ICE messing with people in the community, like, there have been incredible responses. And these responses have yielded yielded like you know meaningful results we don't see ice coming back into those neighborhoods after all these people are going out and trying to educate people um and so we're still in obviously always in kind of uncertain territory but we know that they're trying to escalate and we also know that you know we're trying to escalate activists are trying to really bring the fight to them as well as defend people in our own neighborhoods and backyards and you know i hear a lot of people saying you know i I hate what's happening it's it's you know a a moral tragedy it's a failure of um the united states one of many Mm -hmm. uh, mind you but you know to to these people what do you say how can an everyday person take action how can an everyday person take action i mean i would say see what's going on in your city um in if you live in new york we have one campaign that we just started called Evict Ice NYC. So you can go to evicticeNYC.com, where we're trying to kick ice out of the building that we protested on Saturday on the West Side Highway. And so that's one way to put pressure on ice. Um, we're also going to continue doing direct action um, through a coalition that's called Close the Camps NYC. <clears throat> NYC. So there's like direct action. Um, but then there are also like other. So the Vic Dice campaign is going to involve a lot of, like, letter writing, phone calls, phone making, canvassing, things like that, um, if you're not comfortable with direct action for any reason. Um, um, but, yeah, I would say look at what's going on in your city. If there's nothing going on, try to find people who, you know, might know what's going on or mm-hmm. any organizations that might be organizing near you. Great. And before we turn to listener questioning questions, I just have one more question for you. And that is, yep. what type of world is Cosecha trying to build? What is the vision um, of the United States that Cosecha is working towards? That's yeah, a beautiful question. So Cosecha knows, we know that um, we already have everything we need in our communities. So one of the principles of Cosecha is built on a series of principles that I recommend anybody going to, just looking up Cosecha principles online because they're beautiful. But we, we as a movement, we believe that we have everything already in our communities that we need and we can provide for each other. And we don't have to depend upon ICE, you know, obviously not ICE. We don't have to depend on the police. We don't have to depend on corporations to supply for us. Um, and we're trying to build a movement where we show the world that, you know, this country depends on immigrant labor. And it depends on, you know, of course, people who are allied with immigrants. Um, and we're not going, and we kind of have the power, if we choose to, to withhold our labor and grind this country to a halt. And so basically it's a world where, like, we're providing for ourselves mm-hmm. um, and we're providing for each other because that's what we already do because 
you know, the labor of immigrants and the labor of, like, these communities already runs the whole country. Absolutely. Um, we believe that, like, our, that, you know, we can provide for each other and that we don't have to live in a world where we're constantly afraid of borders and border patrol and our families being separated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't agree more. That's a beautiful vision to work toward. And we actually have a listener who has called in. Hello, you are now on air. You can yes. go ahead and ask your question. Hello, uh, how are you? I'm doing good. Uh, my name is, uh, I'm good, good. My name is Erebus from uh, Harlem. I wanted to mention um, a part of the advocacy against ICE should be also the 96 laws which created ICE. And um, I think like if people just closed ICE, you know, Homeland Security and FEMA will just reopen it under a different brand. And then they'll say, well, you can't abolish FEMA, you can't abolish Homeland Security. It was the 96 laws that created you know, that allowed Obama and people like this to have the deportation industrial complex. And a part of my advocacy has also been to focus on stripping down and getting rid of those uh, 96 laws. So I just wanted to inject that into the conversation also. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, you know, I'm wondering for our listeners, uh, how can they get involved with the fight that you're currently involved with and stripping those laws? I'm sorry. Um, could you could you start from the beginning and say that again? for just anybody in general. Oh, just um, everybody, everybody. For our general listeners, um, what can they do to kind of join you in the struggle that you've taken on? Well, um, Congress Congressman uh, Rahul Grijalva, Grijalva from Arizona, back in um, I think 2016. He put forward a resolution to undo a lot of the changes that um, was created in the 96 laws. And it was supported by, yeah, like 28, I believe, co-sponsors. And that could be reintroduced with even more emphasis on getting rid of, um, like, the judge's discretion. Judges don't have discretion. Attorney general discretion. It's just fast-track deportation. And a lot of the like minor violations and, and people who done time, served their time, and, you know, mandatory deportation. A lot of that stuff could be stripped down and taken out. The whole good immigrant versus bad immigrant, mm-hmm. a lot of that, mm-hmm. that, that, whole, um, that whole approach, you know, was, was emphasized with the 96 laws, and then especially Obama. And Trump is just pushing everything on Front Street that was already there. So I think um, with the new Congress that we have, the the progressives, as many of them are called, um, they could pressure them and and bring back the um, the proposals of Rahul Grijalva and and maybe add to it, tweak it a bit, you know, update it, and and actually have a challenge. The crime bill from Clinton was challenged. The, The Welfare Act from Clinton was challenged. It's only the 96 immigration laws have not been relitigated in the congressional sense. So I think that's that's the direction that we should go in also, as well as, you know, shuttering ICE, because, again, the 96 laws created ICE mm-hmm. and created, the, or, you know, the, the, the reasoning for yeah. all the, the heinous protesting that's going on with Absolutely. the immigration system. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with our listeners. Um, that definitely gives them another thing that they can do to... Um, fight ICE and, you know, fight the uh, terror that's being enacted on our immigrant communities. And I also just want to thank you, Jesse Ortiz, for joining us today and talking yeah, to my us pleasure. about the amazing work Cosecha is doing. If you're listening, get involved with Cosecha. They're an inspiring organization. Jesse is an inspiring yeah. organizer. Um, and thank you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Have a good day. And before we close out for the day, I'm going to give all of you listeners some things that you can take home with you, some actions that you can take this coming week. Because like I said, these issues, they require our attention, but they also require our action.
So if you're here in New York City, you can join us on Tuesday, August 28th at 6 p.m. at the People's Forum. That is 320 West 37th Street for Code Pink's uh, monthly local NYC Divest from War meeting. I'll be there joined by other Code Pink organizers. And we're going to be talking about our Divest from War machine campaigns. And that includes some local city council campaigns, our um, movement against BlackRock and its CEO, Larry Fink, who's profiting off of weapons and war manufacturers and contractors. We're also launching a campaign against MoMA, and Larry Fink is actually on their board. So, you know, definitely come. It's a great way to get involved with various initiatives happening around New York City. And then Friday of next week, a week from tomorrow, there is an actioning action happening at the Port Authority bus terminal here in New York City. 6 to 8 p.m. It's called Ice Off Our Buses and Greyhound Collaboration with Ice. And this speaks to exactly what we were just talking about. We need to knock out the pillars of all of the institutions, corporations, organizations, etc., that are helping ICE carry out its program of deportation and detention. And uh, Greyhound is actively collaborating with ICE, so we're going to be holding their feet to the, fa- uh, the feet to the fire. Excuse me, this Friday, um, next Friday um, at 6 p.m. at the Port Authority bus terminal, New York City. And then um, a week from today, there is a, a No Raids Close the Camps Abolish ICE rally happening at the Grand Central Station in New York City, organized by Rise and Resist. It's going to be a silent protest in the main hall of the Grand Central Station. We'll bring our no raids, close the camps, abolish ICE banners, photographs of the children who have died in ICE custody, and photographs of the detention camps to raise consciousness of the issue that's happening and ultimately push for the closing of the concentration camps, the end of the raids, and the abolition of ICE. And just a reminder, please go ahead and follow Stand With Kashmir on Instagram and Twitter. Go to their website, standwithkashmir.org. Um, a reminder to also follow us, Code Pink, on Twitter. Go to our website, codepink.org, to sign up for our updates. And always remember, call your Congress people, keep their feet to the fire. They answer to us. We are the people. We have the power. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Code Pink Radio on WBAI.org um, if you want to listen online. 99.5, I'm Rose. If you want to shoot me an email, you can reach me at rose at codepink.org. Peace. Thank you. Code Pink Radio over WBAI, 99.5 FM, WBAI.org, on the web, Rose Asaf, in studio today, in the New York studio. I'm really very, very happy about this joint, this collaboration between WBAI in New York and WPFW in Washington, D.C. It's something that I've thought about for a long, long time. You know, we're a network of commercial free listener sponsored community radio stations. So this is a wonderful beginning in in my estimation. So if you appreciate the Code Pink program and are looking for more, then visit us online at WBAI.org and consider becoming a sustaining member a BAI buddy, that's what we like to call it, and for as little as $10 a month, you can help sustain and support Code Pink, sustain and support WBAI, because we are the clearinghouse for all that you hear over these airwaves of 99.5 FM. The Gary Knoll Show is upcoming. Stay tuned.
Hi, this is Tom Hartman, host of the Tom Hartman Program. Join me every weekday afternoon at 2 p.m. for feisty debates, my take on the news and issues of the day, and some of the smartest callers in radio. That's the Tom Hartman Program every weekday afternoon at 2, right here on WBAI. Free Speech Radio, 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. Tag your